This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, my name is Ariel Adams and this is Superlative Podcast. My guest today is a very special person that I've been looking forward to chat with for a while on the show, uh, Mr. Miguel Seabra. Miguel, how are you? I'm fine. Uh, we, we actually uh, had a very nice chat a few months ago uh, during Dubai Watch Week and it's glad to have your company again. Great to chat with you. It is, it is. I want to give people who don't know you a little bit of... Um, a preview of who you are and what I think your sort of, I'll call it a reputation. So ever since I started going to watch industry events, Miguel has been, you know, really a fixture. It's, it's, it's not a complete event unless Miguel is there. Miguel is <laughs> the, the smiling, welcoming face uh, who wants everyone to have a good time. He's a connector. He's very cultured. He's very passionate. Um, you live in uh, Portugal. Um, I don't know how many languages you speak, but it's more than me. Um, uh, and you have been, yeah, you have been involved in writing about watches and your other passion, tennis, since the 1990s. What am I missing? Well, uh, I mean, I, I graduated in history of arts, but I've been playing tennis since when I was a kid. And uh, uh, I also have this historian side of mind that led me to to take that uh, history of art course uh, at the university. During the university times, I was also a coach of the university team. Uh, I was a national tennis champion, uh, national uh, university tennis champion. I was also a coach, a professional chair umpire for, for a while. And uh, because watchmaking and uh, uh, prestige watches were always a fixture in the in the tennis universe with sponsorships and uh, sponsor deals, I started paying more attention to, to to watches. Even though you know my father had a few Omegas, so I was always uh, uh, very curious about watchmaking since when I was a kid. Uh, it was normal for a, a father to gift um, the son uh, a good watch uh, if, uh, after uh, a certain a certain time or the 13th uh, anniversary or the 18th anniversary. And uh, so uh, uh, my my passion for watches grew uh, when I became a, a tennis journalist. That that's because that's what I wanted. To, to to be even when I was uh, taking history uh, at the university uh, I started writing about watches I started you know, doing translations from catalogs uh, and then that passion grew and I started going to uh, to Basel World in 95 and then uh, it's great to have both passions for a job because I really like both areas that I um, the that are both my areas of expertise, and it's even better when both areas connect. And there's a lot of uh, uh, common points and, and and connection between between both areas. So it's uh, I'm a happy guy. I'm not rich, but I have a, a rich life. Let's go back to college for a second. There, um, how often is it that someone in athletics is an arts history major? I mean, it's a great major, but it's sort of like you know, the major when you don't really need to think about a career. Was it, were you, was, was your idea that, that professional tennis was going to be your life? Um, I, I always really, really liked uh, tennis. 
not just playing, but all the other sides, all the other aspects. That's why I, I took uh, three coaching courses. I, I also became a, a referee. I took the, 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 the chair umpire course. I was a professional chair umpire for two years, you know, traveling around the world, uh, umpiring professional matches. Um, and, of course, I always had this artistic side. That's why I, I thought it was a good idea for me to to. Um, to take the the course, but my uh, my love and my passion for tennis took over. So I never did a lot with with, with the course that I took at university. But of course, that uh, artistic education also helped me a lot. Not only in my writings, but also in my my culture and the the way I see the world. So uh, I then I made the transition to become a. Uh, a tennis uh, journalist in, in 91 and I started traveling the world and buying watch magazines and soon I was also uh, a watch journalist so there you go and the funny thing is there's no like special entrance to being a watch journalist all the people from your era who started writing about the with the world of watches did so uh, sort of by accident sort of just by being gravitated to it and we use the word journalism kind of loosely right because there exactly. was not exactly. really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It just, when, when they say journalists, describe in your words, what, what were they actually talking about? Well, I have to say that uh, I became a journalist right before the big change that was uh, the Internet. So I'm, I, I consider myself to be an old school journalist. Uh, but now the Internet really changed the, the, the scenario of journalism and, and, and media. So, uh, of course, you were one, one of the first ones, uh, you know, you were one of the first ones launching a, a blog that became uh, a big website. Uh, before you, I was uh, already, you know, going, uh, you know, time zone, all those forums when you started exchanging ideas. It was uh, really important for, for uh, making uh, watchmaking more democratic and the sharing the knowledge. And then it was you, uh, Ben from Odinke, uh, Frank from Monochrome, Robert Chan from, uh, from Fratello Watches. I, I remember meeting uh, all of you for the first time in those uh, uh, final years of the 90s. And then, of course, we started seeing each other more often during the, the big fairs and the, the special events. And it's uh, it's been quite an adventure, eh? the, the way it, <laughs> it's, it's a human adventure. It's really is a human adventure where, where we are at this point after 20 more, uh, 20 plus years. You know, it's funny because lots of times people have said to me that sort of the inner workings and behind the scenes of the luxury industry, specifically the watch industry, would make for a good reality show, a good series, a good book. And when you think about it, it's really not about the products, is it? It's really about the people, the it personalities, the, uh, the, the, the sort of strange events that coalesce together. I mean, don't you agree that there's an amazing piece of human drama uh, just to talk about sort of the luxury watch industry from sort of like 1990 to now? Yeah, because uh, in the middle you had the the advent of social media that changed the, the scenario of watch journalism, uh, watch media uh, completely. So uh, right now you have people getting invited to uh, events that cost a lot of uh, money to to organize just because they have 
uh, great social media outlets, whereas we're used to to work the hard way. I mean, harder way. Of course, the those social media outlets they uh, they require expertise. Uh, they require a specific way of, of communicating. Now you have you have videos and the reels and the compositions and the the, the TikToks and the, the audio parts. Uh, of course, uh, many of them are really really good at what they do. But uh, yeah, we we used to talk a lot about influencers a few years ago. I think I, we are past that phase because there are uh, uh, really good people out there doing great uh, things with, uh, with 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 the new tools that are uh, these um, social media outlets. But uh, you learned the, the hard way. Uh, writing article after article, starting a, a website on your own, and then uh, you know uh, getting people to collaborate with you. Uh, a few of them I know. I've known, for instance, um, uh, Sean. I don't know if he's still working with you uh, on a on a great uh, a trip yeah, to Largo with with Oris. It was an epic uh, journey, an epic event, one of the best ever. So we have a, a lot of great memories, karaoke, we were singing together, we were dabbing together. So, um, so it's always great to say, you know, when, uh, when we see each other, when I see you, I, we have a lot of common experiences. And of course, the, the, the sharing part is, is always, uh, always fabulous, you know, sharing experiences and sharing knowledge. When social media began, I noticed that the events became very, very different. People were sharing on the spot, and, and it changed it changed the events in a lot of ways, not just from a business perspective, because you didn't have weeks or even months to cover things. You had to do stuff right away, but also from a social perspective, because the, the world of watches and luxury that is traditionally very discreet, now people had the ability to post everything. Exactly. Think a little bit about those years before social media and those years after. What what was really lost? Because my, my theory is that an enormous amount uh, uh, was, was lost in terms of what people said and what people did and how events were. Talk about those pre-social media years and then maybe compare it to the post-social media years. Well, when I started going to, to Baselworld, I wanted to have everything, all the catalogs, the, the press releases. There were press releases with diskettes. Many youngsters don't even know what a diskette is, uh, CDs. So I remember uh, coming back, I remember carrying uh, bags with kilos of catalogs and press releases because I wanted to bring everything. It's the historian part of mine. Uh, and uh, you know my my hands were almost bleeding because because the the bags with the the weight would cut my 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 fingers. And then I would go to the airport and pay uh, extra luggage because I, I had forty plus kilos to 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 bring back to 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 bring back home. So that was the heavy side of of, of, uh, uh, of uh, our job then. Uh, of course, when you go to uh, to a fair, you you want to go to every single brand. I remember going to to Basel and the, and all one. It was a democratic all where we had all the the, the best brands that are there now or used to be there, uh, but also all the other micro brands and smaller brands. So it was a, a completely different experience. Uh, also. Uh, of course, then I remember that uh, I would always take a camera to take 
pictures of what is on my wrist as a uh, uh, reference for, so I could, you know, uh, have a, uh, a visual memory of the watches that I, I was trying. And then the iPhone came and the, the digital cameras came and we kept on taking uh, wrist shots and started posting on on uh, on forums, on, on websites, on, on blogs. And now you have those wrist shots that I used to to, to take for, for as a visual uh, reference of, of mine, a, a visual memory ad. You have it on uh, on Instagram all the time, so it's really it, it really amazed me, and I, I've, I've, <laughs> I've taken more than half a million wrist shots since '95 with all those pictures that I used to take that was uh, that were only for for my reference, uh, and then you started having the iPhones and the digital cameras, you started posting those, and then the iPhones and the smartphones made it also easy. And then now everybody takes three shots, and it's an art. It, 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 is a, it is an art, and it's one that I've participated in. I, mean, I was doing exactly. you know, wrist shots, obviously, way before social media for the exactly. website. And, but I, I also want to focus about the brands themselves and the culture oh. of luxury, because these events is where a lot of the culture would happen. Yeah, well, and they were for a long time what I would say is authentic luxury experiences. And then more recently, they all became like Instagram, Instagrammable moments mm-hmm. where it's all about a couple of like stage shots, you know, not a lot of actual things going on. And I believe that you were sort of the perfect person to ask about some of those events that I either didn't go to or maybe don't remember about what was actually going on. Like those events used to be fun, used to have a lot more interesting people there. But now mm-hmm. because there's sort of this heightened level of we have to have a marketing, you know, KPI out of this event. Do you find that a lot of the reasons for the event has gone away? Sort of like it's there in skeleton and form, but the soul is missing. A little bit because people are always uh, in a hurry to post, to take pictures, to to seize the moment. Whereas beforehand, you would you, you would go and you would you know take your time with friends, and uh, you, you you wouldn't have to go back to the hotel or back to, to the media room and uh, and post because, uh, of course, the, there are rival websites and everyone wants to have the, the, the first word. But, but back then, things were really, really different. In the 90s, we were coming out of the Quartz era and uh, there was the Quartz was still very, very uh, uh, predominant. But we were beginning to, to, to see... Uh, some sort of renaissance. You had Frank Muller who made the watchmaking sexy. And people don't remember uh, that Frank Muller used to sell a million uh, dollars of watches per day. There were You had Daniel Roth, you have Alan Silverstein who were the superstars. You, you didn't have that paranoia about uh, in-house calibers that started a little later on in the 90s. You had Abel which was one of the top five brands in the world. And right now, where's Abel? And Abel was huge in tennis, huge in Formula One, huge in golf. And Pierre-Alain Blum was Jean-Claude Biver uh, before Jean-Claude Biver. But the fact that he, he earned so much money with Abel made him uh, invest in other areas where he wasn't so good. So he had to sell the, the company. And, uh, and now yeah, Abel is pretty much out of uh, the, the, the watchmaking landscape at the, at the highest level. So uh, uh, a lot of changes, of course. Then uh, you have the, 
the, the conglomerates, you know, groups started buying brands and uh, yeah, you started having the, the luxury conglomerates and the, and, and, and the marketing of the, the manufacturer movements and the in-house uh, movements, whereas previously you have uh, Patek Philippe with movements from Gégil Coutre and movements from, I don't know, Nouvelle Lemania or whatever, and people were not so about that. So, uh, and then we, we saw uh, watches uh, getting bigger. We saw the advent of, uh, of uh, Max Boozer and his uh, Opus series. Uh, you know, watch watchmakers uh, uh, coming to, to the fore. Uh, back then, you only knew that there was this designer called Gerald Genta, where actually there were a lot of fabulous designers uh, such as Jörg Isaac or Eddie Schopfer. We talked about that. Bell. Eddie Schopfer was, uh, was a, uh, a prolific designer that, for instance, uh, came up with the design for the uh, uh, Ebel um, uh, Sport Classique, which was a, a huge classic from the late 70s and, and throughout the 80s. Uh, and, then, uh, uh, and then, you know, websites and people started you know, paying more attention to, to, to watches again, to mechanical watchmaking. And uh, we we saw all those uh, uh, new brands coming up, and then then we had this this period in the early twenty two thousands that I used to call the i technology, where you had all those movements that you could see uh, uh, through the through the dial, and uh, you know Otlons and Linda Verdelin and all those new brands coming up, and then you had the the the, the, the return of the of the the vintage of the the, the retro. Um, fashion that you started noticing pretty much after 2008, 9, 10, and then it was a decade that was completely dominated by by uh, by the the vintage uh, fashion. But yeah, we were talking about about events back then. Things were were really different. Uh, for instance, we didn't even know uh, we didn't even have a press area in Basel World. A few of us had to fight, you know, to, for better conditions to get coffee over there. Uh, a few snacks that journalists could could uh, could have. There was there was one one thing that that uh, you know uh, became different. And of course, I was telling about uh, telling you about the the there was a, there were different times with a different timing where you had that time to pay attention to the presentations, to to have the watch, and to to get to know people, and not go back to the hotel <laughs> and write about it. Yeah, that's that's. These days, time goes faster, and people are always in this, uh, always have this sense of urgency. And you, you should know even better than I, because you 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 leave one of the leading websites, uh, watch websites, so you you know how important it is to have, uh, you know, to post and to come up with stories um, as soon as possible. So that was a major yeah. difference. I mean, I I was part of that change because I remember when I started going to Basel World, you know, uh, RIP, I was one of the only people on the journalist side that was doing immediate coverage. Everyone else was sort of used to a slower pace. And exactly. while it, it wasn't my goal to try to shake things up, I did accidentally shake things up in, in, a, in a very big way um, that I think changed the game for a lot of people. But, you know, you described so many different things happening over such a long period of time. Yeah, how did yeah. you, how did you as a person change through all this? Because you have maintained, you have stood by 
Whereas a lot of people have uh, left or changed interests. I'm really curious about not only what has maintained your interest in covering watches, but how you personally has developed over, you know, what's been 30 years now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 passion. If I told you that I'm not rich, I could be richer. Where if I had, you know, picked only tennis or picked only watches or, you know, go into the commercial side. But uh, I feel that I have uh, I'm a journalist uh, in my heart. I like to tell stories. I like to meet people. I like to talk about people. I like to talk about product. I, I like to to. To, to tell what's behind the design of a specific watch. So it's most of all, it's passion. It's passion that kept me on this path. Of course, uh, um, uh, I write for a, for a magazine, so I have time. Of course, we also have our website, but we, we don't feel the pressure or the need to post immediately uh, as a leading uh, watch website uh, as the pressure to to come up with, with stories uh, as fast as possible as as you probably uh, do so i think it was uh, most of all passion i really like watches i really like tennis and i love when both areas connect and and uh, in tennis for instance i've been really fortunate to to have watches Help me out in certain occasions. For instance, I was three days in Mallorca with uh, with uh, Rafael Nadal because of Richard Mill. Because uh, uh, Richard Mill uh, came up with with a with a magazine of their own, and they asked me to do the, the cover story of the first uh, edition about, of course, uh, Rafael Nadal. Because I know uh, Nadal since when he was a teenager, when he was a, a kid, and I write about tennis and watches. Uh, for instance, uh, Taco used to have. Uh, two hours per year with Maria Sharapova. They, one year they gave me one hour with Maria Sharapova in Paris. And uh, most recently, uh, Wimbledon. I've been covering Wimbledon for 30 years. And there's this Australian player that I became friends with because of watches. I'm his watch guru. And he ended up playing two finals at Wimbledon, the mixed doubles final and the men's doubles final. And I've been covering Wimbledon for 30 years, always covering the matches from the biggest seats on center court, and because of watches, Matt Ebden uh, invited me to um, to follow the final from the player's box, which is that little bench that you have right next to the royal box where where the, the, the coaches and, and the wives and girlfriends of the players uh, are. So thanks to watches, I had a new experience in my life. And it was a great experience because Matt ended up winning Wimbledon in epic fashion, epic five-set final on a uh, on a match tiebreak of the fifth set. He served the nice on match point, And then I got to get to, to go with him to the, to the champion's dinner. And if if it weren't watches, I wouldn't experience this, uh, these, uh, these, uh, these moments. Uh, it, it, it was great. Uh, the only thing that uh, bothers me is when you have both things at the same time. For instance, Geneva Watch Days starts on the first days of the U.S. Open and I have to do commentary uh, for Eurosport on the U.S. Open. I won't be able to to be uh, in Geneva for the first days of the Geneva uh, Watch Days this, this year. Yeah, I mean, look, that's the biggest thing here, right? We can't be everywhere at once. We can't duplicate ourselves. <laughs> yeah. We have to make these difficult decisions. But, but, um, let me tell you. Uh, so, uh, every Grand Slam, it's basically two weeks. So uh, Wimbledon is a, is a fortnight. And on the first week of Wimbledon, so I was there 
uh, for the first day on Monday. Then from Tuesday to Thursday, I went to South Bavaria in Germany for the presentation of a new brand called Lang 1943 uh, that pays tribute to Gerd Rudiger Lang, the founder of Chronosuisse. He sold Chronosuisse in two, around 2011-2012 and I remember translating his book into Portuguese in the late 90s so uh, I, I was invited for, uh, to the launch and I, I was really glad that I could be there because Mr. Lang um, is, is I mean uh, is, is, uh, his health is not as good as it used to be uh, he aged quite a bit in, in the past three four, four days with, with, with confinement and COVID so uh, I don't know if I'm going to, to see him again. I was really glad to, to be there. Then I came back, and on Saturday, I went back to Zurich to be at the 25th anniversary of our friends at Maurice Moriac, Daniel and his sons Leonard and, and, and Massimo. They're, they're a, a quite peculiar brand, and they became friends after all these years. I've collaborated with them in a few time pieces, and I was glad to go there and, and come back the next day to, to Wimbledon. Then the, the second week of Wimbledon was was uh, always I was always there, and uh, thank God because uh, it, it was too much traveling and it was not easy to to follow the tournament in that first week when I had to travel, but with, with all the flights cancelled and the cows on on the in the airports, so I, I was able to do both things on the first first uh, uh, week of Wimbledon. B in two times at, at the same uh, two places at the same time, almost almost. <laughs> I want to actually just talk about a tennis-related thing because you're mentioning Nadal, and people may not remember sort of all the little details here, but you know, a number of years ago, uh, Richard Mille uh, decided that you know Nadal should be their ambassador, Rafael mm-hmm. Nadal, you know, very very good tennis player, and the interesting thing was that they said, okay, we're going to have you do kind of a weird stunt. We're going to have you take one of our super expensive watches and wear it while you're actually playing a professional match and to do it all the time. And all of a sudden, you know, with all the visibility that these matches have, this great player is seen wearing a watch on your wrist. And, you know, obviously you want to have as little encumbrance as possible when it's there to win. And yet he was wearing this watch. And for Richard Mille, it was a statement about how light it is, and, you know, how durable it mm-hmm. is. And, and the irony is that a bunch of these watches, you know, I, I believe, you know, broke and they would just replace them and things like that because like, oh, this, mm-hmm. is, this is too valuable. Um, but it was such a brilliant thing. But from the tennis perspective and from the Nadal perspective, how shocking was it to wear a watch or have something extra on you while you're competing? Were people just like whatever or was it kind of like a big deal? It was. It was revolutionary. But let me remind uh, everyone that... Uh, in the 70s and in the 80s, you could see um, a few players play tennis with watches. You could see Boris Becker win Wimbledon with a Nebel on his wrist, playing and lifting the trophy with, with, with a watch on his wrist. Quartz uh, movement, uh, I, I presume. And also Stefan Edberg. Andre Agassi was playing Nebel with a, with a customized strap with little red hearts, uh, hearts on, on it. So, um, and then... There was this phase where you wouldn't see players playing w- with a watch. Of course, then uh, then uh, Nadal came. He started winning uh, Grand Slam titles in 2005, mostly Roland Garros, uh, the French Open. Then in 2008, 
After winning uh, Roland Garros, he won Wimbledon. So he, he won two Grand uh, Slam titles in a row. He beat uh, Roger Federer in an epic final, one of the best matches ever uh, of all time. And uh, and yeah, uh, in 2010, Richard Mill approached uh, uh, Rafael Nadal. Rafael Nadal used to have a watch deal with a with a cheap brand called Time Force or something like that, a quartz chronograph, uh, three three hundred dollar timepiece. Uh, something like that. And uh, at the beginning, because Rafael Nadal, he has his rituals. I wouldn't say he's superstitious because he, he seems to be superstitious when he's playing, but when he's practicing, he doesn't have all those tics or, or rituals or even when he plays uh, exhibition matches. So it's it's something that keeps his mind focused, the rituals. So he was not too eager to play with, with a watch because he, he was winning Grand Slam titles without a watch. So it's, it was something strange that would, he would have to attach to, to his wrist. And then he was reluctant. And then he, he was having lunch with the king of Spain, Juan Carlos. And, and for some reason, he started talking about, about that, about, about uh, you know, the, a brand that approached him to play with a watch. And uh, the king, king Juan Carlos told him, oh, Richard Mille, that's a great brand. It's, it's, it's a fabulous brand. And of course, with, 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 with the king, uh, telling him to to do so, of course he he tried it on. He started he started practicing with a watch in, in Rome, uh, and now everyone was surprised. And then he started playing actual tournaments with with the watch. And it's it's interesting because in 2010, from the moment on that he started playing official matches with Richard Mille, he won Roland Garros, he won Wimbledon. And he won the U.S. Open for the first time. He won three uh, Grand Slams in a row. So he was uh, a good omen. And also, uh, I remember that, you know, Rafael Nadal, he's, uh, he's, he always has this humble discourse, humble speech. And I remember that, you know, people were astonished to, to know that he was playing with a half a million watch back then. So a lot of people thought it was a, a bling watch, you know, the rapper's watch you know, with, with diamonds. No, and I... And I I had to educate my, all my colleagues from, from the tennis media, telling them, listen, it's not Blink, it's NASA. It's a NASA-type watch. It's a Davaguar watch. It's, it's the mechanics. It's the, the, the materials. It's, it's not the diamonds. It doesn't even have a diamond on it. So it's not, a, it's not an ostentatious timepiece. It's, it's a timepiece that uh, uh, breaks boundaries. It's a NASA-type uh, uh, space-age uh, uh, watch that has a tourbillon and you could, you can play tennis with a watch with a tourbillon. And a tourbillon is an extremely sensible device. So uh, I had to, to tell a lot of people and a lot of fans that no, uh, Rafael Nadal was not wearing uh, a, a half a million dollar uh, watch to show his wealth, but actually because it was an avant-garde timepiece. Uh, I remember those times and then of course after after that, that first one, he had several other timepieces, and now he's playing with with a with a million dollar watch that you, if you want one, you can buy pre-owned for almost the double because Richard Mille is one of those brands that became really, really, really expensive, and you can you cannot find them. Uh, it's incredible, <laughs> and it's incredible that Richard Mille these days they have their pre-owned shop in Mount Street, London, selling pre-owned watches almost a double of the watches they sell in first hand. So it's, 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 it's one of those phenomena that you were 
talking about that really changed the landscape of watchmaking. <laughs> now, I've always been curious, does that actually affect performance? Like, you know, does he does he have a little handicap because he's got this thing on his wrist or does it really not matter? I mean, no, maybe that's no. too nuanced. I'm just curious. No, 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 no. Yeah, we, we've, we've talked about it often and the people often ask him uh, in, in press conferences. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's really light, as you know. So you almost don't feel it. And then, then they... He has this Velcro strap that you know it get, it's really tight, and it's on his um, it's on his he's a left hand. He plays tennis uh, with his left hand, even though if he writes, even though he writes with with the right hand. But so he, he wears the, the the watch on his right hand. So the only moment of impact with the ball is when he hits his two handed backhand. Anyway, ah. it's it's a violent shot for a, for a for a timepiece uh, with with a tourbillon. But, uh, but but all the, you know he, Nadal he plays all the activity that he shows on court is very dynamic, and of course uh, the the watch had to be uh, really avant garde to withstand you know all those G shocks and everything else because you 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 cannot play tennis with with a tourbillon because the tourbillon would uh, you know would deregulate immediately so it was yeah. really <laughs> interesting and uh, and it opened a door. For Richard Mille, and then uh, he started having all those ambassadors in in Polo. He want, of course, you you also wanted to to venture into team uh, sports, but you cannot. You're forbidden to play soccer or uh, football, the American football, what we call American football in Europe, with with a watch because it's a contact sport and you can hurt others. But uh, but Richard Mille would be really really. Um, happy to have you know the best basketballers and the footballers play with, with with his watches. So yeah, I think uh, I think it's it's a matter of you get used to it. And uh, as Billie Jean King used to say, champions adjust, and uh, every every uh, every player would adjust having a, a timepiece on the wrist to practicing the, their own sports. That's that's uh, that's my take on, on the subject. You, know, you get used to it. You get used to it. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at A Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. I've talked to a lot of like race car drivers about watches. You know, many of them really like it. And it dawned upon me that depending on what your sport was or what your background was, you might be into watches in different ways. Like, I don't assume that people that race cars are into watches the same way that um, that people who play tennis are into. Or am I wrong? It's just, you know, it doesn't matter what the, the sport is or sort of into the same watches. Mm. Or are there, are there differences in how they appreciate it? I'd say, I'd say uh, motorsports, there's a, a cultural and historic and mechanical connection with watchmaking. 
that goes way back from the first uh, uh, times of, um, of the automobiles. You have the, the instrumentation, you have the, the dashboard, and you have companies doing uh, instruments to the, for, the, for the, the car companies. Uh, it's an engineering connection. So I think some people that like cars are uh, driven towards mechanical watchmaking more than maybe other sectors of the uh, sports scene, motorsports. I think uh, I grew up uh, seeing, you know, the Formula One, uh, watching the Hoyer logo on, on, on Ferraris and McLarens. Uh, you would see the, the Formula One broadcasts and you'd see the Oyer logo everywhere and then and then timing by Longines and then Tissot. So uh, I think there always was a connection between uh, watchmaking and watches and, and, and cars and, and motorsports. And uh, it's it's pretty much obvious these days because you, Formula One, you have, you have watches, uh, brands uh, sponsoring every every uh, every team not not only uh, over there but also you know for all levels of uh, uh, of car racing i was recently with uh, cuervo isobrinos uh, at a historic endurance uh, competition in the portuguese racetrack uh, racetrack uh, down south and it was beautiful to see all those vintage cars and uh, um, legendary um, automobiles and i was there in the middle of the action on the, on the pit stop and the boxes because of uh, because I was invited by a watch brand so so yeah i think it's it's a pretty natural maybe the most natural connection there is between uh, watches and sports it's the uh, timepieces and motorsports timepieces and motorsports yeah and then i think with other ones you know it's less about the watch as a machine and a tool and more about the watch as a trophy i mean i've written about this you've talked about this for a lot of people, a watch isn't, you know, just an item to tell the time and all the mechanics that go into that, but it's a status symbol and a tro- trophy as seen as success. And mm-hmm. in the world of racing, similar to the world of, of tennis and other sports, you know, with the Rolex, for example, it's seen as like you win the Rolex if you, you know, you, you, you get, uh, you know, you get championship in the right, in, in the right games and things like that. Like it's, it's an achievement more than it is a utilitarian item. And I think that it's interesting to see how, you know, for a race car driver, the pedestal is the best car, right? So the best watch makes sense. And then in other contexts, the highest prize is what you're looking to achieve. And it's just sort of interesting how you can have desire for the same object, but come to it from a completely different um, standpoint of what you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm 55. So I'm from a generation where... We would say, oh, uh, a watch is the only jewel a man can wear. Of course, these days, you know, people wear uh, earrings and uh, and bracelets and whatever. Uh, so it's it's not like that anymore. But uh, when I was young, you know, it's uh, it was a cultural thing to say that you know the watches are a man's toy, or uh, cars and, and watches are a man's toy, or. Uh, watch is the only jewel a man can have, but these days, you know, it's quite different. And uh, you were mentioning, you know, the the, the racing and, the, for instance, I have a friend from my hometown that uh, has five Daytonas 
because he won uh, altogether five times. So he has winner engraved in, in the back. <laughs> and when he, when a couple of times when he went to, um, you know, to, to a shop to adjust the, the bracelet, they said, oh, this is fake. No, no. I, I I won at Daytona. I won at Le Mans. So and then he, he showed the picture. So he, it's fun. Yeah, you, you have. Uh, so that's uh, maybe that's the, the only uh, place where you, where the waiting list only lasts twenty four hours, right? The twenty four hours of Daytona and the 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 twenty four hours of Le Mans. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it always was the Rolex's uh, motto. Uh, you know, to have a watch as a, a reward or the prize for a, a huge event on your life. So is, and then you have the the the, the Patek Philippe Porto. It it, uh, it it sticks. So I see why you brought that up in our conversation. It, it is a, a reward to an achievement that you have in your life. You know, gift yourself uh, a nice timepiece that can last or give one to your wife or your children. And uh, my generation was used to that. When you would finish school, you would get a, a, a nice watch. And then when you finish high school, you get a better watch. And then when you graduate, you, you'd get a, 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 an even better watch. So, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Of course, right now, you know, people uh, buy watches to wear in different occasions. Whereas back then, that was, that's uh, also a big, uh, big difference. You know, your father would have a watch and would pass it on to you, or you'd wear pretty much the, the, the same watch uh, several years in a row or throughout your life. And now you have a, a watch, you know, uh, to go to the beach, or you have a watch to go to a to a cocktail, uh, a dressy cocktail event, or uh, you have, you have uh, several watches. So that's uh, that's what we're leaning towards. Yeah, you mentioned something interesting there that I want to comment on about how you go from getting, at least historically, you go from getting a a simple watch to a better and better and better watch. And that made me think about how there's a lot of collectors today who maybe become aware of watches by the time they have money. Mm-hmm. And then rather than buy watches incrementally to find you know better quality and better design and more prestige – they try to sort of go straight to the top right away without sort of going through that journey and being able to appreciate them. And then I think they end up losing a lot because they don't know why the nice watches they have are nice. What would you suggest as advice to people out there to have some restraint? Even if you can afford it, don't buy, quote unquote, what you think is the best because you won't be able to appreciate it. Like how, you know, give, give the Miguel advice on taking your time with, with going up the ladder, so to say. Right. It's difficult, a little bit difficult for you and I to give advice because um, we've been uh, in the industry for a long time and we don't feel the need to be validated by wearing a certain watch. You you can wear whatever brand you want or whatever micro brand you want. Uh, people, you, you, you don't need validation. You don't need to wear a, a Patek or a Richard Mille or a Rolex. Uh, and uh, to be sincere, these days I'm I'm leaning more and more uh, towards uh, towards micro brands or brands that uh, you don't see around. And I'm not wearing my Audemars Piguet while offshore or my Rolex Explorer that much anymore, or or uh, even Jezel Kut, which is a brand that, that I adore. Um, I've, I've been wearing watches that I that I 
collaborated with in you know, micro brands such as Isotop, and uh, there's uh, one coming out now uh, with um, Studio Underdog, the strawberries and cream. Uh, I like to wear those watches because um, I have I have I had an input on on them, but also because you know they're they are independent, they are micro brands, they they have a democratic price. Uh, for instance, today I was with uh, Jorn Verdelin, the founder of Linda Verdelin, a very interesting brand that was founded in 2002. So it's it's uh, it's their uh, 20th anniversary, and he moved uh, from London, where he was based, to 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 the uh, the area where I live now in Cascais. So he, he lives in in Estoril. Now he was uh, I had a few beers, and he showed me a few uh, watches that he's going to launch. You know, uh, from now on, so under under embargo. And uh, I was wearing my, my Linda Verdon. I actually have two Linda Verdons, and I'm really proud of wearing them. And if people don't don't recognize them, I, I don't care. But because people know that I'm with uh, with watches, people will ask, and I have the, the greatest pleasure to explain why that this watch is, is special to me. And um, and yeah, of course. But I, but I I know that. It, uh, in the first moment, people know about you know Rolex, of course, Tag Heuer, Breitling, and that's the first watch that they want to have. And then, uh, of course, Richard Mille, and with social media and the the, the craze around these uh, these brands and uh, how um, how a great how a good investment these brands can be. I think I think they lose a little bit the the fun of exploring more. Uh, these different designs, different brands, brands that don't don't have as much pedigree, but can be uh, as much fun, and uh, you know, actually uh, own them and have them on the wrist and wear them uh, to events and uh, talk about them to to others. When you get to that stage, it's when when you become a true aficionado, and then you start going to. To gathering, watch gatherings, and participate in forums, and yeah, the watch WhatsApp groups. Yeah, uh, you, you have a point there. Of course, they go straight to the top because they have money and they need social validation. And I don't need that. You don't need that. But the few, some people do. And uh, but maybe after that, when they dive into watchmaking, they start they start learning more about watches and they start discovering what a great brand Heilagenzona is and then the, uh, the independence and Caributi line and, and MBNF and Dubatune, which is a brand that I really, really love. So uh, it's a process and, uh, and a, a different journey for uh, different people. So well, let, let's be honest here. Without the social validation element of the luxury watch industry, you and I probably wouldn't have much to do because watches <laughs> could be cool, but the industry wouldn't really exist. And it's very easy for us to scoff at it. <laughs> oh, you want to get those diamonds just to show off your money? But that's really what it's been about for a long time. I think what's what's been interesting is how it goes from showing watches, uh, wearing watches to show off money to recognizing that that's not a very satisfying thing because there'll be lots of people in the room that have the same watches and lots of people that are able to show if they have money. So that doesn't become a very satisfying message anymore. And then yeah. you say to yourself, okay, if it's not about showing off my status, maybe it's just about showing off my personality. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is this proliferation of very colorful watches. I very early on came to the conclusion that this was sort of a new 
more democratic era of peacocking because to peacock with gold and diamonds and other precious stones was really just about showing wealth and it was becoming sort of less polite and less socially acceptable. Mm. But with colors, you can get a very similar level of attention in a very democratic way because, you know, there's no there's no price for the color orange or red or blue mm-hmm. or whatever. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just a color. And so I saw a new era of playfulness and and ultimately finding something that very specifically talks about your personality. And I, and I hate exactly. to sort of cheapen it, but the fashionability of watches and their ability to say something about the wear is so important. So you and me have both dabbled a little bit in, in we'll call it watch design. And you've got mm-hmm. one coming out uh, the day after we record this. By the time people uh, hear exactly. this show, it'll it'll be available to them. Talk a little bit about becoming a creator because you you and i both and i think this is something we have in common we don't want to be watch sellers right we have no interest in selling watches i don't have an interest in it you don't have an interest in it but given our time in this space you're obviously more more mature than me in it we have a lot of opinions and we have a lot of like best practices and things we know do and don't work i guess one question i have for you is why has the watch industry not chosen people like you and me to run brands more often uh, yeah. or to have high level. It's not that it hasn't happened. You know, I, I remember like Pascal Brandt, uh, who for many years was at, was at Bulgari and now is yeah. at Parmigiani. He, he had a, a journalist, journalist background. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's not un, unheard of, but it's rare. Pierre-Jacques, the CEO of the Batoon, was a journalist as well. You, you're right. It, it does happen, but it's sort of like if you're not there and you don't speak French, forget about it. Yeah. Well, uh, you brought to the table a very, very interesting subject, you know, the, the colors. I I remember in the 90s when they came up with a Royal Oak Offshore in various colors. You know, people were uh, amazed by Basel. Oh, wow, so many cars, too bright. Because people uh, don't realize that uh, until the 90s, the the Swiss watch industry was really, really, really conservative. And there was not a lot of imagination. You'd see the catalogs, they were really, really poor. And uh, uh, I remember uh, seeing uh, the catalogs of a new brand back then called Bell & Ross. They have this Parisian background with all the designers. They came up with catalogs incredible that would, you know, put shame uh, catalogs from the best Swiss brands. And uh, they were very Swiss. And, of course, the, the fact that a lot of designers and, the, and the, of course, uh, since the 90s, you have people, you know, uh, working everywhere, from everywhere, uh, going to work everywhere. A lot of people coming to, to Switzerland to, to work in the area from Italy, uh, even from Spain, from Portugal, a, a lot of countries that brought new ideas. And actually, uh, designers and the communication also became so much better because because beforehand the, the, the catalogs and the communication was really poor. It was not it was not at the level uh, at the same level of the products that they, they were communicating. So um, I remember those splash of colors, but um, it's interesting because you know you would see, uh, of course, the seventies was was a fabulous decade where we would see. Uh, any kind of shape. Actually, in the seventies, a round watch was the was the odd watch to have because the, you know you have the, especially the cushion cases and the geometric case and then integrated design. So um, so the colors came back, and uh, uh, and then you had the two thousands. And I remember 
a few years ago, I, I, uh, I would never think of having a, a red watch because red wouldn't appeal to me. But then everybody has black watches. Everybody has blue watches. Everybody uh, has uh, silver dials and, and uh, white dials, of course. But yeah, if you, if you own a certain amount of watches, then maybe you're looking for a different color if the, the, the dial is well done. And then uh, uh, Fume dials came back also, uh, thanks to, to the help of, of Moser. And uh, I remember talking to our friends at Maurice Moriac, uh, telling them that uh, a Fume burgundy dial or a red blood dial would be, would be really nice. And I was surprised by Daniel when he came to see me at Wimbledon some five years ago. He had the prototype of a Fumé red dial because I sent him a picture with the with, with Portuguese national team of 1966, the football team, with a red blood jersey that I, a color that I really love. And he tried it on with a Fumé dial, and then he came up with a watch, and I... I was really glad, indeed. and after that, we, you would see red watches everywhere. And of course, then you had the pandemic, and after the grey pandemic times, I think people were looking for emotions, and therefore color that provide emotions. So I think we're uh, in a in a colorful era, not as colorful as the seventies, because we we tend to forget how creative and colorful. And uh, straightforward, avant-garde the seventies were, but uh, I'm glad that uh, you know the brands are investing in colors, and you get to see uh, special editions. You, you you saw the Tagore coming up with with a, a crimson dial, with a Carrera with a crimson dial. I really like that one. Uh, of course, um, uh, Moist Moriac has those Fumé dials on the on the L2 and L3. Uh, time pieces from the from the, the linear collection, and um, and yeah, and even Isotop, they they came up with a brilliant uh, uh, watch called Will Return, inspired by those uh, signs that uh, uh, New Yorker the shops in New York would have at the door when they were not there, and uh, even I, I collaborated with with uh, with Isotop to come up with with a with a watch called Terra Maris that has a brown fumé dial. With a blue GMT disc, that's a, that's a unique color combination that is also inspired by Cascais because Portugal is where Europe ends and the Atlantic Ocean starts. So you have the Earth and the, the continents and the, the sea and the ocean. So Terra Maris, which is the Latin name for you know land and, and sea. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm I'm buying any black dial watch or white dial watch or silver dial watch uh, these days. I'm going for colors and uh, the strawberries and cream, the, the new, uh, the new uh, limited, it's, it's, it's a limited run because you can only pre-order uh, during a, a week, uh, you know, a limited uh, window of time. But it's also inspired by, um, by color, by, by it's, it's playful and it's colorful and it's about, uh, strawberries and cream, which is the you know the what usually you you have in England when you see tennis on the TV, or it's 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 it's, it's associated with Wimbledon, but it's actually a dessert that goes way back. People used to you know uh, eat uh, strawberries and cream even before tennis was invented. There was this uh, tennis predecessor called Real Tennis, 
uh, a sport that was played with kings and people with with its strawberries and cream. So there you go. There's a, another a tennis and watches connection, and it's fun. Uh, it's fun to work with Richard Bank, who who is the the founder and designer and marketing uh, director of of, uh, of a Studio Underdog, and I and I love a watch that is mechanical, fully mechanical, that is affordable, that is fun, that is playful. And, uh, and actually, I, I bought uh, um, a Studio Underdog when they came up uh, on uh, Kickstarter on the same day as Full and Mari. And a lot of people went for Full and Mari, which is a mecha quartz with a with a vintage uh, design. But I went for the for the Studio Underdog, and I, uh, I had the Desert Sky. Now I have a big chalk chip, and now I have the prototype of the of the strawberries and cream. No, it's, it's great because I love when you're speaking, you talk a little bit about the consumer culture today because you are a watch consumer as much as you are um, a, you know, a journalist or, or a cover of the industry, similar to myself. And there's like little hints in your voice as to sort of how approach it. And a lot of it is, you know, you can't buy everything and you have to make these like difficult dis- decisions about what to get. But ultimately, yeah. you're seeking variety, right? You want to get a lot of things. That's the goal. Um, mm-hmm. We're almost out of time, but I do want to talk a little bit about your part of the world um, in Portugal, because I think that for the next several years, for a lot of economic reasons, Portugal is going to get a lot of attention. There's people moving to the the part of the country that you live. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, from where I live in California, I understand have been moving out there and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's definitely not an easy thing. Yeah. Well, it's weather wise. Yeah. Language and culture obviously are different, but talk a little bit about how you think Portugal and the areas that you you know you inhabit are going to have effect on the luxury world for the next five years. Well, it's hard to to predict that. But what I can tell is that Portugal is a great country. It's it's a small country on the western part of Iberia. So our neighbors, Spain, also have their. Every country is great as its advantages and maybe disadvantages. But uh, our little country, though, know, is always a, a country open towards the exterior, the sea. We discovered the sea path around Africa to India. We were a country of explorers. And I think it's, it's part of our culture and our mindset to be open to, to, to other cultures and, and to other people. And, um, you know, the gastronomy is great. It's, it's, a, it's a safe country. Uh, the weather is great. It's not too hot. It's, it's warm in the winter. There's not a lot of rain. And, uh, and on the on the coast, and the, for instance, in Cascais, where I live, you know, there are a lot of people coming over from all parts of the world because it's a safe country, because of the environment, because of, of the weather, because of the, the culture. Everybody talks uh, English, but I think you know, for instance, Jorn Verdelin, who moved from London to here and never looked back, never looked back. And London is a great city. Uh, he says that Portugal should be more upscale. You know the Touristically, should be should be attract even more and more, you know, uh, um, upscale tourism. But uh, yeah, of course, we have certain areas in Portugal that are upscale. But uh, but uh, all it would influence the luxury. Well, of course, when when the the IWC launched the Portuguese uh, yacht club, they they chose to do it in Portugal because of the name Portuguese. It was a uh, a collection that was inspired by two Portuguese businessmen 
in in the thirties. So, well, it's it's hard to predict. But uh, of course, if you have more and more people coming from abroad here and wealthy people, it will have an impact in some way. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to, to predict. But I would love to organize. Uh, watchmaking summit here in Portugal. I'd invite you. <laughs> no, I'd love to go. I've never, I've never been. And I, again, I want to remind everyone that, you know, in in this sort of interesting cast of characters, which is the watch industry media, Miguel is, you know, you're the principal connector. You you participate in bringing people together. You know, you do mm-hmm. like to party and have fun, but you're really about bringing people together, which yeah. is funny because there's inclusive luxury and there's exclusive luxury and we focus so much on exclusive luxury that takes people out you try to bring people in and i really appreciate that it's interesting because i was you know i I was i told you i was having a few beers with with jordan verdlin but we were also with uh with uh, nacho garzon from fratello watches was actually wearing uh, a zodiac uh, that was a collaboration of yours yeah, yeah, the Aquamarine uh, dream. Exactly. What, what a coincidence! And Jorn was saying that oh, um, we we were the first ones, you know, to to realize that uh, you know, uh, uh, Basel World and the watch fairs were were not the right formula for for us. And uh, I told him, Jorn, even though you think it was not the the, the right formula for you, I really love to see together to the same place at the same time because I'm a corporativist at arts. Uh, you, you said I was a connector. I really like I mean, I, I hate that uh, Richard Mille and Audemars Piguet stopped you know, going to to the SCH and now Watches and Wonders because they feel that the, the formula is not the best one for, for them. But, but I have the responsibility to be there and to to be available to the to, to the press and the media and to 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 eventual clients, uh, even though it's it's expensive and uh, I think it's an investment. As I told you, I'm a corporativist. I uh, I like to, to to bring people together, as you you said. I I get along with all uh, uh, sectors of, of of watch media, maybe because I, I I can speak in French or in Spanish or in Italian or a little bit of German. And uh, most of all, I like people, and I think uh, people are the most important. Fa- people is the most important factor behind behind watches. You know, years ago, I kind of abandoned the idea, but years ago, I had this idea where I thought that us watch writers should create, for lack of a better term, like a little trade union, right? I, I, we, yeah, exactly. I was, and I always thought you you would be the perfect president of that organization. Oh, That's what I always because, thought. Because I, I tried to, to, to trigger that. Uh, actually, in one of the first uh, Dubai Watch Week uh, events, we, we even had a, a, a meeting. I don't know if you were there that year. But uh, we tried to. There, would, there used to be some sort of uh, because because I'm used to it in tennis because you have the International Tennis Writers Association, and it's a very useful association because you get better condition to media in the Grand Slams. You know, uh, the the media restaurant and the the per diem that they they give you uh, each day. They give you a certain amount of money that you can, you can use to you know to. To, to to have lunch or, or dinner and uh, uh, but it's 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 really difficult it's difficult and it was tried before with the Gregory Pons and that they they 
they fought really hard for better conditions at Baselworld, for instance. They it's thanks to them that we we now have or used to have because we Baselworld um, uh, committed Arakiri and killed the golden goose. So uh, <laughs> so so they so that area in the media where, where you could you could eat for free and have coffee and drinks. It was their fight, and I, I, I'm completely convinced that there is a place for an international uh, watch writers association or media association or whatever. We we should have a, a, an association or um, what? What? What did you call? Um, like a trade um, union. A trade union, you know. But now we used to have more than one big event. Now we only we only have watches and wonders. Uh, it used to be it would be really helpful, you know, with Basel World because they were really arrogant. The Wi-Fi <laughs> Wi-Fi was terrible. The conditions were terrible, and the the, the prices were uh, obscene. In in you know, if you wanted accommodation in Basel, you would have to pay a fortune. So they committed our theory. <laughs> but if if we had a trade union, maybe we, we could, you know, have a, a strong voice and advise them and get better prices and you know make them realize that they they were going to, uh, in in the wrong direction. And, well, and yeah. it was their we'll, fault. So we'll see what the future brings. And you are uh, you are absolutely right. I think we need a trade union. We need a, a writers' association or at least a. Uh, Watch Media Association. Okay, Miguel, we're we're out of time. Tell everyone where they can find your work or learn more about you. Well, I, I'm the editor of a, um, a magazine, Espiral do Tempo, uh, in Portuguese. So most uh, most of you understand Portuguese, but we have also espiraldotempo.com, and you can you can you can read in Portuguese. But uh, you know, from from the first time that I uh, on Facebook and and uh, uh, and on Instagram and on Twitter, I chose to communicate in English. So you can check me out on those uh, social media outlets, you know, Miguel Siabra on Instagram or Miguel R. Siabra on, on Facebook or Miguel Siabra on, on Twitter. On Twitter, I, I usually I communicate more about tennis, on Instagram more about watches and, 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 and wrist shots. But these days I do more stories than actually uh, regular posts. Of course, on Facebook, uh, I post about watches and uh, uh, and tennis. So uh, you, you can you can find me there, or you can find me at Watches and Wonders, or you can you can send me a message, and I, I'm there for you. You're everywhere. You're everywhere, Miguel. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Superlative Podcast. Thanks for the, for the invitation, uh, Ariel. Send my regards to to Sean. I haven't seen him uh, for a while now, and uh, yeah. And we're going to have uh, the Orology Forum in New York in September. So I hope to see you there. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.